Hey, blind spotters. We just wanted to let you know there was an issue with Zach's mic in the beginning, but it does get fixed by the end. Happy listening. Respect my pasta fast food king. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I just to, want to talk about Paul back Dano. to this movie. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklib. I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap about a couple of cool girls. I watched Gone Girl for the first time, and Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Bonnie and Clyde. Two bangers, two important films. Two cool girls. Yeah, the two kind of dumb guys. Yeah, and it all comes out oh. on my birthday the 27th anniversary of this cool girl. Happy birthday to Amanda. If you don't tell Amanda happy birthday today, what the fuck are you doing? Tell her happy birthday whenever you listen to this. Like if you listen to this April 8th, happy belated birthday, Amanda. I'll take it. I love birthdays. So uh, on not your birthday, on the day we are recording this, how are you doing? What have you been watching? (laughs) I'm doing well. I've actually watched um, a couple of really good films recently. I watched Black Bear starring Audrey Plaza and Christopher Abbott. In the Earth is a neon production that I got to watch um, in some screeners earlier, but I finally like got to it. Um, and I don't want to really say a lot about either of these movies because I don't want to give away a lot of the information, but um, they're both really intense in pretty different ways, but both like really like were mind bending and just really took me by surprise. And then I also watched uh, Petite Mama and also sort of like mind bending in a very more subtle way. Um, But the movie was really, really uh, touching and graceful. And I really enjoyed that one as well. What have you been watching? Nice. Those are some uh, fun films. We love to twist the mind a little bit with what we watch. Yeah. I've been catching up on some more 2021 releases. I finally watched The Souvenir Part 2, Joanne Ogg's follow-up to The Souvenir Part 1. Love a coming-of-age story. Love a coming-of-age artistically story. Um, Would recommend. And then I also finally watched The Worst Person in the World. And I was very touched. Amanda, earlier in our lives, said that I would love this movie. And turns out I would love this movie. Um, Those two films, I would say that they're in my top five of the year i've rearranged that list on my medium account and i probably would say the worst person in the world is my favorite movie of 2021 so far that i've watched it's probably right up there with um licorice pizza if not past it so uh enjoyed that and then i also started watching station 11 which is either the worst thing to watch right now or the best thing to watch right now um depending on how you feel it rips i don't want to say too much about it i'm late to it i missed the whole weekly releases of it but i'm um, really enjoying that hero mirai directs some of the episodes and it looks fucking beautiful you already said this on an earlier pod so um, it's also kind of based off that. of uh, a very famous novel so um if you happen to have read um the novel that came out i know that it is different enough from the tv show that it's been suggested if you liked the show and you want to live in that universe a little more um that the book is worth visiting so maybe i'll read the book yeah i'm about halfway through it by the time people listen to this i probably am finished with it i'm not that bad at tv i will (laughs) probably finish it within the next few days so um yeah i've been watching some bangers but uh you know 
like you said, it's based off a book. And I'm going to use that very minute point to transition to the movies we're swapping, one of which is based on a book, Gone Girl. And then you also watched Bonnie and Clyde. Um, A fun double feature, honestly. Um, Honestly. We wanted to talk about some cool girls on uh, this International Women's Day. Both movies that I think you and I really wanted to watch and now have been able to watch. Um, which is really exciting for both of us. So we kind of got to cross something off of our lists that were both pretty high up. So that's also very exciting. But let's do the coin flip and let's uh, start chatting. Amanda, what do you call it? (laughs) Tails. It is heads. All right, Zach. Dude, we're talking about Gone Girl. Like, what are you talking about? All right. I was going to save it to the end, but I'm down to talk about it now. No, I have so many thoughts. Let's, Let's get into it now. So, Zach, tell us what happened um, in this David Fincher classic, Gone Girl. Okay, Gone Girl. Good Lord, what a summary this is going to be. Okay, directed by the god David Fincher and written by Gillian Flynn, who is adapting her own novel. Um, Okay, so this movie is set in Missouri and on the fifth anniversary of Nick Dunn and his wife, Amy Dunn, played by Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike, respectively. Um, Nick discovers his wife is missing. An investigation begins led by Detective Rhonda Boney, who is played by Kim Dickens, and she's a little bit suspicious of Nick. And she's kind of like our avenue to start wondering whether Nick might have murdered Amy. A town-wide search begins, and Amy's parents arrive to help. Here, we start to learn about, you know, Amazing Amy, which is a children's book series that Amy's parents kind of based on Amy, but improved on her life for the sake of the books it's a really screwed up situation but anyway with the help of amy's anniversary tradition of leaving nick notes nick tries to figure out where she might have gone and what might have happened to her and we start to get more and more suspicious about what role nick might have played in her disappearance throughout the movie we also get flashbacks to the start of nick and amy's relationship through the point of view of amy's diary Um, The two met in New York as working writers and kind of had this picture-perfect romance. But after they both lose their jobs during the Great Recession, the cracks kind of start to show. Nick then decides they need to move back to his hometown in Missouri to take care of his dying mother, along with his twin sister, Margo, who is played by Carrie Coon. And things really start to go downhill from there. Nick begins teaching locally, and that's how he starts having an affair with one of his students. In the present timeline, Amy's disappearance starts to pick up like national media attention and the press parks itself outside of Nick's home. And Nick continues to do dumb shit that makes it appear like he might've actually murdered his wife. Um, eventually evidence mounts up, including Amy's potential pregnancy, um, an increase in her life insurance policy and these random big purchases that are apparently made by Nick. And Nick ends up finding all these things um, hidden in Margot's shed. Basically he's fucked um, and realizing he, he needs to get a lawyer. We cut to black and then fucking plot twist. We find out Amy's alive. Uh, She framed Nick for her murder and is planning to kill herself. However, her plan kind of goes awry when her campground neighbors discover her big bag of money and rob her. This forces Amy to kind of ad lib on her plan. And she seeks out her ex-boyfriend, Desi, who was played by Neil Patrick Harris, whom Amy had filed a restraining order on previously. Desi helps Amy, but we realize rather quickly that Desi is like terrifyingly obsessed with Amy still. Meanwhile, Nick is in this middle of this media circus trying to prove his own innocence and say he hasn't killed his wife. And he's realizing that Amy has framed him. So he also hires Tanner Bolt, a lawyer who is played by Tyler Perry, to help him prove that innocence and flip the narrative. 
After a successful interview on national television, it seems like Nick is on his way to freedom. But Amy, who watched the interview in Desi's creepy lake house, is impressed. And she also knows that she's not safe with Desi. So she starts plotting her escape. One night, she finally lets Desi have sex with her and subsequently murders him with a box cutter. Then, bloody and haggard, she arrives back at her and Nick's house in dramatic fashion, and Nick is in disbelief. Detective Boney, who is now on Team Nick, tries to poke some holes in Amy's story of kidnapping that she had created, but the FBI sides with Amy. Amy and Nick proceed to play like this psychotic version of House, and Nick plans to divorce and leave Amy, but then Amy reveals she's actually pregnant, having inseminated herself with Nick's sperm that he had produced for a fertility clinic. And so Nick, feeling responsible for the child, decides to stay with Amy despite Margot's objections. And Nick and Amy announced that pregnancy on national television. I know I skipped a lot and this movie jumps around a lot, but how did I do? That's the movie, dude. Like that's that's the description. You did good. There's a lot happening. Okay. (laughs) Fucking Fincher. All right. Tell me why you told me to watch this movie. So we're looking for cool girls. Obviously, there's the big famous cool girl speech. So I wanted it was an easy way to uh, bring these two things together. But it is simply a movie I wish that I could watch for the very first time um, again. So I enjoyed living vicariously through you watching it for the first time. Uh, It is like very top of my list of like movies I wish I could like erase from my brain and see for the first time again. So um, it was kind of fun to watch you go through it. Yeah, the term uh, roller coaster of emotions should be reserved for movies like this. Uh, <laughs> good God. Um, yeah, great pick by you. So let's just get into it. What were some of your first impressions? Yo, the twist still hits. Like I knew what was going to happen in the movie because it's kind of unavoidable if you're a certain amount of online. And unfortunately, I'm the extreme version of that. And so I knew about the cool girl speech. I had heard it. I knew that Amy was actually alive uh, the whole time. But the way the movie is constructed and the way the story is delivered, even if you know that and you if you let yourself like kind of be washed over by the by the first hour of this like who done it that they construct, the the smash cut to black and hearing Amy say, I'm so happier now that I'm dead is cinema. <laughs> Even though I knew it was happening, I still wanted to be like, oh shit, Amy's still alive. Like it's so crazy that that still has the right amount of punch. And maybe it's because like, even if you rewatch this movie, I assume that first hour sprinkles in all these little bits that knowing what you know now that you know the twist is coming, like all the seeds are planted or all the little shades are there and you can kind of appreciate that part of it. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this movie a dozen times maybe. And the line reading from Rosamund Pike, when she says, I'm so much happier now that I'm dead every single time. I'm like, yes, let's (laughs) go. This is so good. But when you watch it back, like you, you start to fully understand the lengths that Amy went to frame Nick. You know, when the detective notices that the the picture frame is still up, you know it's because she it knocked over and she put it back up. Like all those little things that you learn throughout the very first time 
you know, you get to rewatch it, you're noticing it um, a little bit more and more. And you actually like have a lot of respect for like how far she went to do this. And then also like, I feel like Nick seems dumber every time I rewatch it. <laughs> like, how did he let this happen? How did like, how did this all go? Um, but it's, it's extremely rewatchable for a movie that uh, has like a big twist. And something, you know, going back to my comment about like Nick seeming really uh, dumb, the next times you watch it, there's a line toward the end where she's like, you think you'd be happy with some Midwestern girl? Uh, No way, baby. I'm it. And you like, the more you rewatch it, the more you realize that they are actually perfect for each other, despite this being like one of the most twisted uh, situations of all time. Like they, he wouldn't have been happy with someone any less smart and manipulative because he likes to play games. That's why they go on a a hunt every year for their uh, anniversary. He doesn't just like want a gift. Like he, I don't think he wants to be trapped in a pregnancy or in a marriage. That's completely different. But like the type of woman who would do something like this is the type of woman who's enticing to Nick Dunn. I want to push back a little bit. I feel like maybe he's more engaged in this relationship in terms of like, he knows he has to be on his shit with Amy, especially, you know, any slip up, he might be framed for a federal crime. But I have to imagine that he would also like to just chill as we saw, like when he's like unemployed and just wants to play video games and have a laptop for laptoping. Like maybe his life wouldn't be as like, I won't say fulfilling, but like as terrifyingly exciting but i do think he would not mind just owning a bar with his twin sister margo and like not really caring about his wife that he knows is not going to kill him but amy dunn is peak irrational confidence person like i love those types of athletes where they they come in and they think even if they're the eighth person off the bench they're they're it they are the shit and it doesn't matter whether they are or not. They believe that they are. And like most of our favorite villains in most stories, um, she believes she is correct in what she is doing. Like Amy Dunn believes that she is doing the right thing for Amy Dunn. And so you just can't help but respect that. And I felt myself rooting for Amy in parts of this. And then I was like, no, no, wait, what? No, no, absolutely not. It's great. Uh, what we'll definitely talk more about Rosamund Pike, but what yeah, else uh, has sort of stood out? It's impossible to watch a David Fincher movie without feeling all the David Fincherness. Um, he loves like the the little details. Whether there's a good video on YouTube, I think Nerdwriter did it, talking about how Fincher kind of hijacks your eyes, and it's the way he keeps the perspective in his frames and like the camera movements, and it's so precise. And Fincher famously notoriously loves to take so many takes like dozens and dozens and dozens of like nearly hundreds of takes for the smallest details and like because everything is so exact like the tempo and framing and blocking of the scenes is insane like there's one scene when amy's at the campground and she's sitting by the pool and she takes a bite of a kit kat and but when she takes the bite it's like on a certain beat and tempo of the scene and also when she takes the bite her 
hand moves the Kit Kat to where it's like very aesthetically framed perfectly. And it's so insane. And then my thought was, because I was watching this movie and like knew I was going to talk to you about it. My thought was like, oh, this is like a dark Wes Anderson. Like this is evil Wes Anderson as David Fincher, where like everything is so exact in how it's moving. Like I remember hearing an interview where David Fincher was like really going crazy about the extras that were in the library scene during one of like the treasure hunt moments because the people weren't walking like regular people enough for him. And like that is the level of uh, precision that comes into a Fincher film. I know Fincher is your guy. Um, so like I opened the door to you to gush over the Fincherness of it all. I mean, it's true. I've never thought to think of him like Wes Anderson, but dark. That's really funny. And I'm just so who I am. It's ridiculous. Um, But I have such high respect for the fact that David Fincher knows exactly what he wants every single second of his film to look like and like will not stop until it is exactly what he wants. But he also hates watching his movies because he's he has uh, n- said in um, interviews about watching his own films that it's sort of like looking through old high school yearbook photos. Like it's something that like it doesn't bring you great shame, but you're like, ugh, I could have done things a little differently here and there. And he can almost always find fifteen to thirty minutes that he could have cut out of every one of his movies, and that's crazy to think that he's so exact and that like even when he's done he's not done he could still be doing more um he jokes that he never finishes a movie he gives up on them and that like i can't imagine taking like 77 takes and then him being like that's good enough like like, how could it get any better but i have so much admiration for the fact that he goes in and every single detail matters to him but also the movies he makes are really entertaining. Like you yes. you do have to be on like your most watchful eye, but you want to be. He almost reminds me of like um Bong Joon Ho in that way, where like you want to watch Parasite as religiously as it's meant to be, because every scene is so interesting. And you're like, what is going to happen? Or even like Snowpiercer, like you want to get to the bottom of the mystery. um, But at the same time, you're watching super intensely. So I I think that that is a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting wire that he walks on. Yeah, I think, you know, Fincher is definitely a master of the form. And, you know, some filmmakers are particularly good at, you know, layered storytelling or writing or pace of of dialogue or something like that. But Fincher is a in a totality as a director just captures everything you want in a movie. Like you said, it's entertaining and also there's like some scholarship that comes with it, but not in a pretentious way. It's just like this movie rules and also you can pick apart little small things if you want to. Um, and it's that makes it even more enjoyable whenever you feel like you're almost it's almost like you're playing a game with Fincher while watching his movies and like being entertained. And then um, kind of the last thing that stood out immediately was uh, the fact that Gillian Flynn was adapting her own novel. Usually you feel like with, you know, book to movie adaptations, you lose a certain thing or, you know, they're just different mediums. So you're always, I always wonder how that story is being conveyed to a movie screen. And 
you can just tell like she she gets the form that she was working with like you know you, you can't write the same way in a book that you do for a movie like we mm-hmm. have journalism backgrounds and we know that broadcast writing is much different than digital and print writing like substantially and we know that creative writing is much more different i did not realize until looking into this movie that she also wrote widows which is the, the steve mcqueen uh crime movie with viola davis another thing that i credit to her is um every scene ends on a strong point that kind of like pushes the plot or pushes characters forward and it's like a page turner like every time the scene cut it was like what's gonna happen next and i really appreciated that like that it creates the the momentum of the story that is like so visceral in this movie and this is probably not as important but like because she is all both the author and uh, screenwriter i just trusted the fact that this is the story she wants to tell because we, we know that sometimes the movies can be far away from what the novel intended or the story that it intended to tell um but just given that the author is the same uh, i kind of just trusted it more in general so what else have you what have you ruminated over since watching what have you thought about most let's get into rosamund pike Fuck what yeah. a freaking performance she's perfect like it's pitch perfect like she feels perfect for this role it almost feels mean to say like oh she was born to play this role uh, because she's also like very sweet jane bennett in pride and prejudice but i can't really imagine someone else playing this like her it's like a blank and layered performance um her her voice is even perfect it's like this like breathy deep cadence and voice and she's british and, and wouldn't be able to tell um yeah like god damn i think that's why the cool girl speech hits so well is because she speaks very like pointedly and that uh speech is very punchy but it also not to bring up the scene again but it reminds me of the the end argument scene when she admits to nick that she is pregnant and sort of what she did and uh he is like i can't believe this is happening and she's like this is the cunt you married like this is this is fucking (laughs) it dude you signed up for this because you kind of like it and like i there are very few actresses that could play that where you're absolutely petrified of her but you're also like she's kind of (laughs) right like you you kind of did um if she's kind of she's just People aren't suddenly like this. They always have sort of these tendencies. But I think another extremely incredible thing that Fincher did was find someone that the audience doesn't have a relationship with that is also at the caliber to act against Ben Affleck. How many people have we not heard of that could act against one of our generation's best actors? Like, that's truly incredible because if you had put most any other actress in this position, um, there would have been too much baggage. We would have seen so many other things um, in Amy and maybe not been believable. And you have to believe that she can pull this off. It's the number one most important thing on this movie is you have to believe that she's smart enough and witty enough and fucking cold enough to do this thing. And if you have an actor where you're like, oh, you know, well, I know her from these types of roles, it might not work. It might fall through. And I think that that's like a huge testament of what she was able to achieve. 
I'm so hung up on the voice of it because you can feel whenever her voice is dripping with sarcasm or contempt or even joy. And like, it's very minute differences in the way she's delivering things. Like the way she sounds, this is such a strange comparison, but it reminds me of uh, Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. And like Norma Desmond is playing this like silent film actress, but it's, it's very dramatic and breathy and like down low. But, but Rosamund Pike's, performances amy also carries like that venom of a person who's framing people for murder um for fun basically and i think the only other actor i can think of who could play this role she's far too young at this point was i would love to see a version of this with emma stone i feel like it was probably won't be as good obviously but and it would be more manic and like her emma stone's face is more intense but i do feel like she could do a certain version of this in like 10 years whenever she is the same age as Rosamund Pike is in, in this movie. But, but beyond that, it was crazy to see that Reese Witherspoon was originally tapped for this role, which would have been interesting because it would have been one of those performances where uh, she was so dramatically playing against type, but Rosamund Pike was just this, this blank slate that you can put all the layers of like amazing Amy too, I guess. It's interesting that you mention Reese Witherspoon because she is most notably the person who was pegged to play um, Amy Dunn. And I think it's sort of a good idea that they, they didn't go with somebody with baggage like that because, you know, there is an audience that will watch that performance and go like, that's, that's Elle Woods though. Or like, that's the girl from Sweet Home Alabama or hell, that's the girl from Election. Like she has an inerrant, <laughs> inherent sweetness about her in so many of her defining roles. And there is like a, a bitchy aspect of her character in Big Little Lies. But her character is almost as if like Elwoods grew up and just like moved to Monterey, California and like got really involved in like the PTA and like kind of became a bitch. Like there, there's like a, a waspy like richness to her that a lot of her characters have that I think I'd be like why is Reese Witherspoon playing this part instead of like, that is Amy Dunn. And uh, it's a miracle that he found Rosamund Pike, in my opinion. So we did talk about the power of, of David Fincher, but he re-teamed up with a, a score team uh, that you've noted here uh, in this movie as well. Yeah, so... Uh, unfortunately, the other thing that has hung in my head the most is the box cutter scene. Incredibly violent. Incredibly brutal. Bottom 10 ways to go out. No, well, maybe. I don't know. It was happy for the mo for a moment. It can't be good. But like, so if you take getting your throat slit by a box cutter in all the scenarios that could happen, if you back that moment up by a second, Desi's happy. That's true. He is happy. And then he bleeds all over Amy Dunn. So tough moment for him. But anyway, I could feel like you were anticipating my reaction to this scene when I was texting you about it. And, you know, the build up to that is is so tense because, you know, Amy is trying to do something to get out of this situation when she realizes she can't really control Desi um, in a way that she feels safe. And so you see her setting things up. And then you hear this bang thing that's like, like straight out of Inception. And to that point, the movie's pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. um, it's tense, but like that's such a big, gigantic moment. And there's so much blood 
which is even funnier when we talk about Bonnie and Clyde and like the importance of violence in that movie. But it's disgusting. Like I, I'm a wuss. I'm the first to admit it when it comes to movies and mo- movie moments. But it's one of those I was like watching it through my hands because Neil Patrick Harris was just bleeding out all over the white sheets and Amy. Yeah. It reminds me of two other very famous scenes in cinema. The um, the blood coming out of the elevators in The Shining and like the cacophony of music that's playing behind it. Like that reminds me a lot of that scene and also the scene in Hereditary where Tony Collette is screaming and, and the louder she screams, her partner is lighting on fire in front of her. And like that's when you get the Tony Collette screaming face like meme. Um, but it's just this like intense eruption of like noise and mayhem that's like all happening. It's like so loud that it's almost silent. Like it's it's like one note of just like this is the most insane. Like you almost like want to scream yourself like while it's happening. It's so gross, so, um, but it's so intense and it's so visceral. And and like you we mentioned the the score from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross is insane. And like to that point again, the the movie's score is really leaning into this like neo-noir whodunit pondering kind of tempo of music and it just shifts so hard and like Trevor Reznor and Atticus Ross are probably one of our top you know five movie composers working right now and um like he said this is the third time they worked together with uh Fincher they worked on the social network and the girl with the dragon tattoo and it's just it's not to make a music pod, but it's pitch perfect. That's so good. So let's move on. We did talk about sort of like the Ben Affleck of it all, but let's really get into the Ben Affleck of it okay. all. Very important part of this movie is the celebrity complex and media narrative cycle. And what a perfect person to put into the role of Nick Dunn, Ben Affleck is. One of our most famous leading men working today, a man who has been in the tabloids forever who has accepted that media spotlight who has been shunned by hollywood who was graciously reaccepted by hollywood gq called him the most overexposed actor in 2003 when he was dating jennifer lopez the first time i think you've previously said on a podcast that david fincher kind of molded the story of gone girl the movie as like a look into the idea of ben affleck so do you want to kind of get into that a little more yeah i mean it's rumored that he chose Ben Affleck specifically because of the way he smiles in press photos. And he (laughs) knew that this was a guy that could be easily fooled, but also a scumbag, but also is in the right. Like he could see all of those things in the way that he was portrayed as Ben Affleck, the celebrity, you know, maybe not Ben Affleck, the, person or Ben Affleck, the actor, but Ben Affleck, the celebrity figure, he's like, oh, this is like how Nick Dunn would also react. And I think that that is, again, like excellent uh, choosing for for uh, Finch to have, have put these two together. Um, and it did like, it came in a point where uh, 
he was he was shunned by Hollywood at this time and um, kind of could have used a movie like this. He was basically on like the comeback run because he had Argo a couple of years before this. He had kind of started to make headway as, you know, establishing himself as a real good and borderline great director um, and producer. He had The Town in 2010. And then in 2014, he he comes out with this. And the scene where somebody is criticizing him on TV, which happens a lot, and he's like, I'm so sick of being picked apart by women. And I'm like, is that Nick or is that Ben right now? Like, what's <laughs> going on with that? Totally. It, and because we're younger, so we didn't have like the same relationship to Ben Affleck that people who like grew up in like the 90s where he's at his peak of like goodwill hunting and like chasing amy but so like that celebrity complex looking back on it is even funnier knowing that he had gone through all of this and now he was on the other end and he had his second oscar and he he does gone girl and it's like this movie did like 300 million dollars at the box office which is crazy to think about now and, and then he decided to play batman which i get it he has kids and like when you have kids, you just want them to be impressed by you. I think he has said in an interview that he was going for the 19-0 Pat season. And like the Pats, he, he took an L in the peak moment. But I think he's a good Batman. Not to make like a hipster pick, but like I, I wouldn't scoff at an argument that to say like Ben Affleck is a better Batman than like Christian Bale. It's just that Christian Bale's movies were better. This can get into the whole Andrew Garfield Spider-Man thing. You heard it here first, folks. Zach thinks Ben Affleck is the best Batman we've ever had and also personally hates Christian Bale. That's what Zach said. <laughs> that is not what I said. I will get my lawyer. I will be exonerated. He um, thinks that but- the new Batman, not for Zach, uninterested. Ben Affleck perfected Batman. That's what he's saying. No, I'm 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 all in for Robert Pattinson. Let the I record show. Wait. The movie's about to come out in two weeks. Yeah, it's gonna no, freaking rip. The movie will have just come out the weekend that this episode airs. Emergency pod. Emergency um, pod. <laughs> Robert Pattinson. Christ. Anyway, back to this movie. Back to a good role, an, an agreeable good role from Ben Affleck, and an agreeable good performance. What's great is that he's also like he's bulking up for Batman at this point. And so he just is like a Husky. You believe that he maybe was like a middle linebacker in high school for his Missouri salt of the earth football team. And that physicality kind of adds this, the like jockiness to Ben Affleck's already kind of dumb frat boy persona that he can kind of play on. Um, And it's picture perfect. It also adds to the fact again, like Rosamund Pike needs to be believable, but also like uh, Ben Affleck needs to be believable. His size is really important because you need to believe that in a very tense argument, he could have killed his wife. Like you need to believe that he's big enough to have overtaken her in the middle of a fight and could have like scooped up her body and put it somewhere. And if it was an actor with any less heft, it may not have been as as believable. And even more than the physical stuff, like we can get into the media narrative of this part. Like that's such a crucial part of this story is the media's take on the case and like the media's fascination of this disappearance and potential murder and the way that that's so critical to the pressures on the characters and like the way that 
Nick eventually like manipulates the media into favoring him and then that's what brings amy back like that whole part of it is so like underrated because you you know can get stuck into the complex of ben affleck and the complex of rosamund pike's performance but uh the media part of this is almost as prevalent as like the whodunit i just wanted to wrap up the ben affleck part with um when he (laughs) when he and amy have shitty sex and then he's like we should go to outback tonight is so funny (laughs) Like, that's the nightmare scenario of, like, me at 40. <laughs> Although, love a blooming Onion. Who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, this movie has a lot of really good, uh, really, really good lines. I That's a really funny one. I think my favorite is probably, uh, you two are the most fucked up people I've ever known, and I specialize in fucked up. Like, that makes me laugh. Oh, my God. Every yeah, single so time. Re- also a great line and you texted me this is whenever when amy is explaining how she pulled everything off and she spreads the blood everywhere and she's like clean it poorly like he would or something like that i love it every time so i good. clean so every good. time i clean my kitchen it's like okay i think of her oh my god what are some of the first things you looked up about the movie should i know my partner's blood type zachary but like <laughs> i don't know my blood type when the cops were questioning Ben Affleck and they were like, what's her blood type? Internally, I was like, shit, should I know that? And then I was relieved whenever Ben Affleck left the room and then they were like, no, we don't know our partner's blood type. Um, but the next thing I looked up was like, what's up with Rosamund Pike? Like nothing happened for her really after this uh, this movie. Like, you know, like you said, she was in Pride and Prejudice, movie we love. And then pretty much the, her next best role is Gone Girl. She gets all the flowers, all the uh, award nominations and and she really hasn't been in a good movie since i don't know what people's opinions of like a private war are she kind of came back onto the scene a little bit with i care a lot which is a movie that uh is divisive to say the least and then um you know she's in the wheel of time the amazon show which i guess that's a thing no people, people who care it. about this yeah who care about the story and those books really like it and so you know good for her but it's not like that movie's like wow what a what a what a moment this is happening this is more like amazon's attempt to like create a game of thrones moment and it hasn't really done that so obviously part of it is there's not enough roles for women and there's particularly not enough roles for women over 35 pretty much but it is surprising to see that if rosamund pike wanted it that she didn't have like a moment after this movie yeah i think it also adds to the fact that she's so believable as amy dunn is because even still i have no really other relationship to her than this movie not nothing as intense at least yeah and it's not like she's you know very out there in terms of in the media or like online or anything like that um and maybe she's happy with like you know she she has a couple of bangers and she'll work she'll pop up um but you know, that's kind of that's kind of it. I mean, who knows? Maybe in a decade and a half, she'll come out with another iconic role, and then we'll be like, "Who has a better three performance or something crazy like that?" But uh, it is questionable. It, it is something I think about or I thought about. And the other last thing I looked up, which as always is the Oscars. Like I said before, only Pike was nominated. This was also the hashtag Oscars so white year. So um, you know, take that as you will. I forgot about that. Yikes. Yeah. So did the Oscars. <laughs> All right. So there's a lot going on in this movie. Is there anything, any questions you have for me about Gone Girl? I'm so sorry, but can you give me your Fincher rankings? 
It's so fluid that since you asked, I have changed my list three times. But I'll, I'll just <laughs> I'll give you all eleven. There's only eleven. I'll run through them quickly. Okay, okay. I'm only going to go through his major feature films that he is credited as the sole director of the movie. He had a lot of other stuff beforehand. But we're going to start at Alien Three, which is also number eleven. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that really, like nine and above, I kind of all love the same. But you know. They have to go in some order. So I'm going to go 11, Alien 3. 10, Mank. So sorry. 9, Panic Room. 8, again, a movie I love, but 8, Benjamin Button. 7, Fight Club, which feels criminal. Um, 6, The Game. 5, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. 4, Social Network. Three, Gone Girl, two, seven, and number one's like my favorite movie of all time, Zodiac. That's an Amanda Corfinger list. This is not a a list of like his best movies. Also, ask me tomorrow, they'll all be different. (laughs) Where does Mindhunter kind of go into this? Mindhunter is really, really good. I would put Mindhunter sort of in the middle. I definitely still think that like um my top five are all better than Mindhunter but um I mean it's I would say it's on par with the game a movie that I don't think gets nearly enough credit for how good I think it is um but also like Fight Club is truly an iconic movie and like I think he's got six other films I like returning to more um but it's just it's so hard and I also ride for Benjamin Button and not a lot of people do (laughs) I will say one of the greatest cinematic moments of the 21st century is Brad Pitt on the boat in that movie. What a scorcher of a man. Potentially the hottest Brad Pitt's ever looked. I love this argument. Thank thank you for putting yourself through that exercise for me. Um, Another one and the last question I kind of have for you is you talked about loving the performances that uh, Fincher can get out of his actors. So who is an actor that maybe you'd like to see in a Fincher movie that hasn't been in one yet? So uh, one that's been on my list for a long time is actually going to happen this year, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Michael Fassbender. I think that oh yeah, he plays really wicked characters, and I this will be Fincher returning to some of his most most like depraved writing and directing again. Which like hell yeah, um, I'm glad he got to make Mank for himself. But we're moving back and. Uh, I think that other actors in general that I would like to see him work with is um, Tilda Swinton. I think that he could do something Mm -hmm. really cool with her. Um, I mean, I'm always going to put Adam Driver on the list. I would love to see Adam (laughs) Driver play someone really deranged. I think that would be very fun. And then, um, again, I'm going to put Jesse Plemons in every movie. um, Because Jesse Plemons, for a long time, was an actor that, like, if he showed up, you're like, oh, something really twisted is going to happen in this film. (laughs) And I think that, like, maybe, like, an older Jesse Plemons and Fincher could, like, really do some cool work together. Do you have any that, like, stand out to you? I mean, this is my general answer for most questions. But um, Daniel Kaluuya, I would love to see in a Fincher movie. I don't, like, because Kaluuya is so valuable, whether... He's charming or menacing. Um, would love him. Would, would love to see him. Fincher also has fun with playing to his actor's startup, and so I don't know if this would work, but um, 
seeing what he would do with like Ryan Gosling because Ryan Gosling kind of has that iciness to him. Um, he's a little bit less charming, obviously, than like Ben Affleck or um, Brad Pitt, but Gosling can kind of go some places and he's also probably mentally stronger than Jake Gyllenhaal. I keep shitting on Jake Gyllenhaal on this podcast, but um, I promise I like him. Swifty, stop listening. But uh, what a Ryan Gosling adventure situation could be fun. Did you have any like remaining comments or questions? So I did have not really a few questions, but I did have a few things I wanted to bring up. Um, we did talk about Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike, and I just I love the way they play off of each other. I think their chemistry in this movie is really enticing. Um, it's like it's intoxicating. I could watch them be passive aggressive, but like have so much like sexual tension at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would be remiss to not mention my girl, Carrie Coon. This is her very first role. She does go on to be in The Leftovers, which is um, one of the best television shows of the past five years. Um, I think it came out five years ago. I don't know how old I am. But uh, she, this really like jumpstarts a really admirable career that she has. And I can't wait for her to be in everything. Also on the Carrie Coon point, I just love go as a nickname for margo i love single syllable nicknames for multiple syllable first names um and and and, and go for margo is is top tier like i'm kind of reconsidering the name margo anyway go on no that's true that's a really that's really cute i like that too anyway what else did you have so my big my last big thing and it's a massively historic case and i will not be getting into all of the details but there are some direct um parallels between the Lacey and Scott Peterson case of the early 2000s and Gone Girl. Gillian Flynn has insisted that there is no direct influence, but there I just picked a couple of bullet points that are really hard to not draw connections to. Um, We'll start at the fact that Lacey went missing while she was pregnant and almost immediately people started suspecting her husband, Scott, Um, Scott had like a young, hot girlfriend on the side that he met up with days after Lacey's disappearance at the vigil for Lacey. Scott was seen smirking, not emoting the way people wanted him to, and even texting this girlfriend. Her name was Amber. Um, Amber went on TV to admit to their relationship before Scott could, uh, get to the press about it first. Exactly what happened in the movie. Um, the, you you mentioned like the media attention that is played into this part, and that is why this case became so famous is because it had massive national media attention, especially in the era of like round the clock coverage from Nancy Grace. Um, this was also in the same time as like Casey Anthony and Arizona's own <laughs> Jody Arias. And <laughs> I guess Jody's technically from California, but the murder happened here. Um, but like the Lacey Peterson case was in this whole thing. And there is a Nancy Grace type character in this movie. And there is round the clock coverage where people are giving their opinion about a guy they don't know based off of photos from vigils and smirking and, and girlfriends and things like that. Like that all, that all is happening. Like he was condemned in the public eye, basically exactly the same way that Nick Dunn was. Um, He does go on Diane Sawyer while his wife was missing um, 
to sort of tell his side of the story, which is a scene we see where Nick Dunn is being trained with the gummy bears. Um, and similar, the, the lawyer who represented Scott, um, Scott Peterson was like an expensive lawyer who covers these sort of celebrity cases that are really well known. Um, and he defends quote unquote, like the bad guy. Um, and I, I just was like reading about the case the other day and I was like, Oh, this is, this is gone girl. <laughs> this is so similar. Um, unfortunately the difference is, uh, Lacey Peterson was found decapitated and dead, um, despite being eight and a half months pregnant. And, uh, Scott, uh, was, sentenced to death. So it is a very different ending, but there are just so many similarities that I had to at least run through a couple of them because it's almost like I can see the scene from Gone Girl reading about this case. And that was <laughs> Amanda's, Amanda's True Crime Corner. True Crime Corner. Or more like dun um, dun dun. <laughs> I appreciate you and your dedication to uh, true crime. Um, Thank you. It's, I, a, my, my it's an thing, ailment. <laughs> Would you watch you this movie again? Absolutely. I, this might be the best movie you've had me watch so far. It's like this or Get Out, Silence of the Lambs is probably up there. But I mean, shit, I watched clips of this movie on Twitter when it popped up and I hadn't even seen the movie. So like, uh, And I enjoyed the movie so much. Of course, I'm going to rewatch this at some point. I might skip the box cutter scene, but um, this was a banger. So thank you for that. Anyway. All right. You ready to get to Bonnie and Clyde? Cue the ragtime music. But first, let's take a break. This episode of Blind Spotters is not sponsored by Vesta Coffee Roasters in Las Vegas, but you could say this host is fueled by them. Vesta is run by people passionate about coffee who want to share that passion with their community, for which I am personally grateful. I love rolling into their downtown Las Vegas location to pick up a cold brew and a bag of beans, and now they have a location in Summerlin complete with a drive-thru. Next time you need a morning or afternoon jolt of caffeine, go to Vesta and you'll be happy about it. As always, support your local businesses. Amanda, they're young, they're in love, they rob banks. You watched Bonnie and Clyde. Hell yeah, I did. All right, so here's what happened. While trying to steal her mother's car, Clyde Barrow meets Bonnie Parker in small town Texas. After chatting, she doesn't believe that Clyde is a bank robber, so he has a stick up with a small shop with very little loot in order to prove it to her. Uh, she is over the moon with this new love and runs away with him. Things ramp up when they get a getaway driver, adding C.W. Moss to the team. The trio later meets up with Clyde's brother, Buck, and his wife, Blanche. Um, Blanche is pretty vanilla and a little erratic, and it drives uh, Bonnie crazy, all while Clyde is trying to keep the peace because he likes hanging out with his brother. The five of them become the Barrow Gang, and things take a turn one day during uh, a bank robbery when CW doesn't have the car available for them after the after the robbery and Clyde is forced to shoot a bank manager and this is his first kill um the because of this the gang is being tracked and that's when they catch that's when they capture a Texas Ranger and humiliate him and then let him go free later a raid gets out of hand resulting in the death of two policemen 
Blanche getting her eye shot and Buck taking a mortal wound to the head. In police custody, Blanche gives away the name of CW. The Texas Ranger uses CW as bait to catch Bonnie and Clyde, but Bonnie picks up on the fact that they're not safe, so they they get out of there. They hightail it out of there. CW is visually relieved. He doesn't want to give up his friends. Uh, The duo pull over, though, to help CW's dad with a flat tire, and they fall into a different trap. The big famous shootout happens, and then we literally get a the end credit like an ends credit card (laughs) iconic how'd i do did i miss anything important no you you captured it all i mean this movie is really a this is so silly to say about an american classic but it's really just a vibe so like the plot is almost secondary so i thought you locked it down it's about a feeling (laughs) (laughs) bonnie and clyde they're just a vibe yeah so why did you pick this movie for me. So Bonnie and Clyde kind of changed the game for American movies. Um, it's a crucial movie for Hollywood, um, kind of post French New Wave and kind of starts this new Hollywood um, in a great year for movies. Um, and Roger Ebert, the guy, Raj, uh, called it the first masterpiece he watched as a critic. He was one of the only critics to give it a positive review right off the bat. Um, we can kind of get into the criticisms of this movie, but yeah, this was just really an important movie in moving Hollywood out of the studio era and into a new version of itself. Yeah. I'm glad that you chose it. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, these are both Gone Girl and Bonnie and Clyde. It's not that we have never heard of them or needed a, a push in order to see them. We both have been eyeing them for a long time, but had saved them for the podcast. So I'm glad that I finally got to uh, take it off my list to finally give it uh, a good watch. So I'm glad you chose it. Cool. So with that, um, what were those first impressions? What stood out to you? So it would be impossible to not talk about how beautiful Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty are. Yes. They're so beautiful in this movie. I was charmed by both of them. So this is, some, you know, all my research is essentially three-fourths asked, I'd say, not half-assed, but definitely not research-research. But um, originally, Shirley MacLaine was signed on to be Bonnie Parker, but once Warren Beatty joined the project, they had to get a new actor because these two people are brother and sister. (laughs) Yes. I had no idea that Warren Beatty and Shirley MacLaine were siblings. Everyone in Hollywood's related, never forget. Um, (laughs) It's it's just, there's like only like seven families. Um, But (laughs) there are. Um, Obviously, they can't have brother and sister playing this like iconic love duo. So they audition a bunch of different actresses, including Beatty begging Natalie Wood to be in the film. It's like another true crime story one day. But uh, ultimately, the the part went to Faye Dunaway. And Beatty really had to be convinced that she deserved it because they had worked together before and found her extremely difficult to work with. And uh, so he says that she got the part by the skin of her teeth, which I think is so funny to think that someone is being like, "Mm, maybe Faye Dunaway. Yeah, especially (laughs) like we just talked about Gone Girl and Ben Affleck. And Ben Affleck literally was like, hey, Fincher, can we put Emily Ratajkowski in this movie? Oh, let's not forget that the reason, one of the many reasons that Fincher chose uh, Rosamund Pike is because she looks a lot like Faye Dunaway. Yeah, Faye Dunaway. What a stunner. Breaking news. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and this movie does a lot in terms of like 
you know, violence in movies, yes, but also just like sexuality and handling that in, in, mm-hmm. in movies. And these people, like you said, are just classically beautiful in a Hollywood way. Um, Warren Beatty's like lips are two repellent magnets where his like teeth are always showing and it's beautiful. I love it's it. It's so cute. Great job by him. Great job by Warren Beatty's teeth. Excellent work by Warren Beatty's teeth. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's hard to ignore that these two really just look great. Uh, Faye Dunaway instantly becomes like a fashion icon. Like her rendition of of Bonnie Parker and like the costuming. You know, not to degrade it to this, but like Halloween costumes for years to come. Um, yeah, anytime you see like a gangster girl, like it's basically a Bonnie Parker rendition. Yeah, and like the cultivation of their image is so crucial to you know the the characters of this movie. Um, it, it is great. What else stood out to you other than you know just obviously being able to look at these two? So not only are the actors beautiful, but like the whole movie is very beautiful. Um, it's very soft, and obviously it was recorded on film and not digital, so that adds a lot to it, but. Um, I like how soft the lighting is throughout the whole movie because it really plays in juxtaposition with how violent the movie is. Um, And it it almost romanticizes the violence, which is like the Bonnie and Clyde story in reality and in the movie, like has always been romanticized. So I thought it sort of fit very well with the tone of the film as well. The movie is also a lot funnier than I thought it would be. Um, There was a lot of very like quippy dialogue that, I I laughed at, um, I I guess like I chuckled at, but I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, because you have to believe like these two people are so charming, like these two characters are so charming and they are having fun um, Mm -hmm. being these kind of depression era celebrities. Um, And yeah, it's it's, it's one of those movies that you file under like the, oh, this has jokes kind of canon. Mm -hmm. It's also how I felt about, what was it? what was the Paul Newman movie we watched for the, the pod? Yeah, The Sting. I wanted to call it The Stand, but that's a that's a different, completely different movie. <laughs> <laughs> what were some other stuff that? Uh, what was something else that stood out to you? I know that you uh, had knowledge of Bonnie and Clyde previous to watching the film Bonnie and Clyde. So, um, curious about your thoughts there. Yes. So there are some historical inaccuracies. Obviously, this is not a documentary. They get the vibe of Bonnie and Clyde. So I really only mentioned the ones that I thought were the most important to like how the movie was different. Um, and I have a few more later on, but the two met um, at a house of one of Clyde's friends over um, hot cocoa, which I think is very That's sweet. Cute. Instead of her like nakedly standing at a window watching him rob a car. It's like a little different of a of an energy, but um <laughs> they met very like innocently at 19 and 20, so they were pretty pretty young when it all happened. She was actually married to a man who was in jail for murder when she met Clyde Barrow. Um she was always kind of a associated with bad guys. Um and there, while they were together and robbing banks, there was a really bad car accident that left Bonnie burned and permanently disabled. Um, in a movie that's so violent, it, they could have put it in there, but also Faye Dunaway probably would have been like, hell no. They robbed mostly mom and pop shops and like small town banks. And like we said, this is the Great Depression. These are not people with money. So they were basically like robbing from the poor for their own benefit, um, which was pretty shitty. (laughs) 
<laughs> but weren't they also like celebrated in a way of like kind of taking back some wealth for themselves in the depression? Like I remember I saw reading some stuff that like they were celebrities because they were kind of this uh people going after fame and celebrity and 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 wealth in a way. There I mean this was also the same time as like like any of the like public enemy um like robbers and like early time gangsters. So there was like a celebrity aspect to a lot of these people. And I think like part of their myth is that like they gave back to the, gave back to the poor, but the like Robin hood of it all, like isn't necessarily accurate as to what was really happening. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's a fun, like you said, um, to talk about the myth part of it um, mm -hmm. is a fun kind of iteration into, or a fun kind of entryway into like a lens in this movie of, they're bad at their job like they're bad robbers even when they meet clyde is like pretending to be this like cool guy who's coming out of jail and he really robs that first store just to like show off to bonnie and bonnie's mm -hmm. looking at him like oh this guy i'm gonna get out of my small texas town and we're gonna be rich and we're gonna be famous and we're gonna have lots of sex and i i guess one out of three isn't bad but uh <laughs> they still kind of cultivate this image. And I think that's kind of a fun, you know, we, we, we were talking about this movie in relation to gone girl and kind of them being in conversation with each other about that. And um, I thought that was kind of a fun aspect that, or a Liberty maybe that the movie took. Mm -hmm. But one of the accuracies that I did want to bring up uh, is that Bonnie really was a poet and she wrote all the time. And after they were both deceased, um journals of her poetry and photos like ones that are famous now but like that they're posing for in this movie that the movie is playing off of were found with her journals um once they had both passed so those like artsy aspects of bonnie were very accurate um but she was no like innocent girl who found a uh uh a rough and tumbling guy like that's not really what she was all about but uh you know it's not a doc it's a it's a movie they're allowed to take liberties but i just thought those were like some interesting ones that i noticed as i was watching the movie you know that makes a lot of sense and, and it's fun to kind of like deconstruct both like the actual body and clyde and the body and clyde in this movie um what were some things that you maybe have thought about most since watching this movie this is gene wilder's first role absolutely <laughs> crazy it's a very bit part three-fourths of the way through the movie or something. It's a very funny and light part. You know, he's a comedic actor. I looked it up. I was like, oh, like, where was this in his career? Like, number one. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, no wonder um, he became such, like, a prominent actor. But I just thought a lot about that. Like, a uh, part that kind of means nothing is, like, one of our best comedic actors of all time and he's so immediately magnetic as soon as he pops on the screen like even beyond the yeah. fact that we're like oh shit is gene wilder he's so good yeah immediately you're like i want it when they get dropped off on the side of the road you're like where are they going <laughs> how do right. i stay with them <laughs> right yeah exactly and it's literally just like what like five ten minutes that they're in the movie and it's just it's yeah. just a nice little lift um, what else has there been for you that's kind of stuck in the brain I've thought a lot about the last scene, which is obviously the most famous scene of this movie. Um, it's the scene, it's the big death scene, it's the battle. 
Um, it's so beautifully done. It's almost artistic in the way that, you know, they, they lock eyes with each other and even to the way like that their bodies fall after they're, they're killed. It's not at all natural, but it is very like, it's like balletic almost. They are beautiful even in death. <laughs> and, but it is noted as one of the bloodiest death scenes in all of cinematic history. And again, it's that, the dichotomy of like the beauty and the and the violence all happening at the same time um and the scene seemed to go on for five minutes but also 11 seconds mm -hmm. um it is it's it's extremely well done yeah this was one of the first movies to ever use squibs which are like those small little explosive charges that um you put on actors bodies and they have a blood bag on them and uh, mm -hmm. simulates that what I love about the scene the most, and I didn't realize it until rewatching it this time, was the way it's cut. Because leading up to the scene, and classically, of course, this happens. Everything's finally happening for them. Like they're they're mm -hmm. in the paper. They're really happy. They finally have sex, which is an aspect that we'll get to. And you know, they're just loving life. And then all of a sudden, the script flips, and and they they realize it at the very last second. And the way it's cut. It's like really, really, really fast close-ups of them realizing that they're just, they're dead. And it's beautifully done and it's so influenced by the French New Wave, Francis Truffaut and, and Godard, and even the last shot. Like other movies might, you know, give a wide shot or stick on the wide shot of just seeing Bonnie and Clyde dead. But instead you are looking through a car window at the you know, the police force looking at Bonnie and Clyde and, mm -hmm. and then this movie ends in silence and it, you look at people looking at Bonnie and Clyde rather than Bonnie and Clyde and kind of mm -hmm. the lens of a lens of a lens onto these two people encapsulates what they meant more than who they were in a way. Another thing I've thought a lot about, obviously this is, you know, one of our first best gangster movies, um, a very violent movie. And I wanted to know I, I could easily assume that a lot of movies had been influenced by this one but i wanted to know more about which ones and the ones that i found that are movies that have noted like the producers of these movies have said like bonnie and clyde is an influence on this are all pretty fucking famous movies like um we've got the wild bunch the godfather ever heard of it the departed Queen and Slim, True Romance, and Natural Born Killers, which are like all famous, you know, gun violent movies. And like Bonnie and Clyde is such shorthand for just like a guy and a girl who are hot and like committing crimes. Even in like Black Panther, uh, they're like your Bonnie and Clyde skit is over. Like it's mm -hmm. just one of those things that's in, in the culture. Um, yeah. Watching classic films is interesting because everything afterward is so influenced by it that like going back to the original sometimes is not as fulfilling um and an example is like you loved watching 2001 a space odyssey and like in my head i couldn't get out of how dated it was like i understand its importance and like i admire the movie in context but like watching it you spend a lot of time with the monkeys at first but like bonnie and clyde kind of holds up in a different way um it, it's obviously dated but it's also a period movie so it kind of holds that longevity mm -hmm. to it and that how, helps yeah and how it influenced movies going forward obviously like you said um, is endless and like the 
the story of Bonnie and Clyde, the people, like the fact that there was in the time of like rogue men, there was this like romance duo that was notable and people all over knew who they were. Um, that alone is, uh, is interesting and different. So this movie is written by um, David Newman and Robert Benton. Um, they were just working at Esquire. Like they were not filmmakers. They just decided to like adapt this story. But Robert Benton grew up in Waxahachie, Texas and his grandparents, like he was able to like ask them and talk to them about Bonnie and Clyde. It was just Bonnie and Clyde was just something was just a story that he grew up with knowing. Yeah. And they, they uh, filmed on site in like small towns in Texas also. What's crazy is uh, the making this movie was difficult because again, uh, Newman and, and Denton were not in Hollywood really. And so they were they loved the movies from Francois Truffaut and they wanted him to direct it. A lot of, he was close to directing it. He didn't because he wanted his first um American movie to be uh Fahrenheit four fifty one. And but Truffaut was like, Hey, Jean Luc Godard. And they met with Godard and apparently Godard wanted to film this movie in New Jersey during the winter. Oh no, very different. <laughs> and they were like do you know the weather of that? Like, and this movie is supposed to be in Texas and Godard allegedly said, I'm talking cinema. You're talking weather. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Which is iconic. That's king shit right there. (laughs) So given that there's like such as history or whatever, um, what was the first thing you looked up about the movie? The very first thing I looked up that we talked about, um, I wanted to know, if Clyde Barrow was impotent. It is such a major part of his character in this movie. If you had to give like three descriptions of Clyde Barrow, the character as portrayed by Warren Beatty, like his sexual like downfalls would be one of the things you talk about. It's very, it's not like a throwaway line. So I wanted to know if that was real. It was not. Um, I did more research as to why it was in there because it just seemed like a really big thing about a person who was real to fake. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It just seemed really like an odd choice, but um, he was not impotent. Um, He could have sex. um, And, but as we described earlier that this movie was really on the forefront of sexuality portrayals um, over the original script had uh, Clyde Barrow as openly bisexual and that he actually has a threesome with Bonnie and another male gang member. I believe it's the the driver um, in the original script to like sort of prove his manliness and his bisexuality at the same time. And Beatty ditched that idea, but because he really wanted to play against the type, like he didn't want him to be a big masculine man which you know there may be other ways of portraying that but this is what he chose and that's what the movie is um but he did want to play sort of him as like a lighter um character which i thought was very interesting i'm glad i got to research it but um on that note i did like that because he was um portrayed as impotent it did allow faye dunaway to play bonnie with like a very sexual forwardness 
sort of a, a woman taking ownership over her sexual wants, which I cannot imagine is something that was very common in the 1960s um, in films. It feels like a, you know, maybe a rendition of a character we'd see more today than in 1967. But I also liked that, you know, she was sexually forward, but she wasn't like, that wasn't her character. She wasn't a chorus girl or a sex worker or something like that. Like she was literally like girl from small town Texas that also just like wanted to get laid by her hot boyfriend. <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it was definitely a choice um, to portray the character like that. But I do like the way it pokes holes in like masculinity and like mm -hmm. expectations on what a guy is supposed to be and like Clyde Barrow is even trying to live up to that. Like Bonnie Parker kind of rules in, in this movie. Like, and, and both of them she's are, the, she's, she's the, the cool girl. titular cool girl. Yeah. And, but even then, even Bonnie Parker is like playing up her coolness or her image. Like when they're taking pictures with the, the ranger and she has the cigar in her mouth, there's like in the background, when she takes the cigar out of her mouth, she makes this like ill yuck face. And like, they're all just playing parts. They're all just trying to project an image. And I think that, the impotency aspect of it is just like one more layer deeper of like this is how much they don't live up to this like legend not as like a criticism but just as like a bank robbers they're just like us like you know celebrities yeah. are just like us kind of aspect to it it's a choice capital c choice that did end up having some positive spinoffs i guess i just wanted to quickly state before we move off of this point it also like made me uncomfortable that his impotency was so prevalent in this movie because the real Clyde Barrow was very notably sexually assaulted a lot of times when he was in jail at a very young age. Um, so much so that the first man he ever killed was the man who was tormenting him and he beat him with a pipe. So you're like taking a real life character that has like sexual violence done against him and then you're like guess what now he can't have sex i'm sure warren Beatty wasn't like looking that into it he just like wanted to be cool on screen and like figure out ways around masculinity but i was just like oh oh no <laughs> what were some other things that you might have looked up about the movie so obviously awards the oscars what a great um, year for so bonnie and clyde was nominated for nine academy awards including best picture and best director but it ultimately only won two which was best supporting actress for the woman who plays blanche and best cinematography um it was also nominated for uh best costume design which you noted about bonnie parker's costuming and it as something that i have thought a lot about also since i forgot to mention it earlier but the stylization of this movie being so dependent on the way that they're dressed um i'm glad that it was nominated for best costume design maybe it should have won speaking to the, like the awards part of it i just want to run through the best picture nominees um let's so, do it bonnie and clyde the graduate guess who's coming to dinner Dr. Doolittle, which is fine. And then In the Heat of the Night, which I eventually won. Like, that's such a big moment for Hollywood. It's so insane um, for, like, a multitude of levels. Like, they're kind of breaking ground on, like, seven different ways with these movies. I'm probably rambling about, like, 
the importance of these movies a little bit because I'm literally reading Mark Harris's book, Pictures Out of Revolution, which covers this batch of movies and what it meant for Hollywood. But it can't be understated how important this year was for Hollywood. Like, for sure. Those are all bangers. Also, like, interesting that it's paired with The Graduate, like, two movies that are have a lot of sexuality at the forefront. Oh, can Something... I make a point about Blanche? So the yes. actor, actor won uh, Best Supporting Actress, Estelle Parsons. Uh, but the real life Blanche sued the movie because Blanche is an all time bad hang in this movie. She's always screaming. She's always freaking she's out. She's always like screeching. Let's be more specific. Yeah, she's she's just a reason for a lot of their problems, including Bonnie Parker's just general mood. But the real life Blanche was like as cool, as hot, as down if not more than Bonnie. And so she sued the the movie makers and um, I, don't, I can't remember what happened in the, the result of that, but I do wanted to note that, you know, Blanche Barrow got a tough edit. <laughs> so I actually do know what happened at the end of that. So she sued the movie um, and she sued the studio yeah. uh, for the portrayal of her essentially citing libel and saying like, you have defamated my character um and she ultimately did not win for two big reasons one it's hard to sue hollywood um and then number two she had signed off on the script of her portrayal so they're like you said you liked it like you don't and like you don't get to go back on that just because you didn't like it later. Yeah. So uh, she didn't win, but that's not that surprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was listening to an interview um, Amy Nicholson did with uh, Robert Benton on her Unspooled podcast about Bonnie and Clyde. And Robert Benton did admit that they did Blanche a little dirty. Like they did regret <laughs> kind of like giving her that much of a, a tough character, which I mean, is funny because again, Estelle Parsons won Best, Actor- Best Supporting um, Actress. So, like, imagine if they had played it any different, and then it wins only one Academy Award after being nominated for, I guess, that would be eight. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, again, it was a, it was a stacked year, and there was less movies and whatnot. But like, it, it is funny to have that dichotomy of like, not real life person got a tough cut, but like, you know, Estelle Parsons, she got she got her trophy. So, did you have any questions for me? I do have a few questions for you. So as you and I talked offline, you had mentioned that Warren Beatty needed to produce it. What did that mean? He was in a tough moment in his career, which is funny because he's like in his mid to late 20s when he makes this movie. Um, I'm also in a tough moment in my (laughs) life and I'm in my mid to late 20s. So he was already, you know, a movie star. He was a heartthrob. He was in the tabloids a lot. I think there was a quote where he was like, there's a lot of fun to be had. But critics were kind of starting to sour on him, like for real, for real. So like... um, you know, he yeah, it was in Splendor in the, in the Grass. He was in All Fall Down and all that stuff. But um, critics just weren't digging him. Like they were over his like mumbly, understated thing that he was trying to go for. And so he knew as they you know they were trying to make this movie. Um, he had a couple of movies in the bank. He had Lilith, Mickey One. He knew that those weren't going to be good, <laughs> essentially. And so you know, he jumps on this movie as like kind of a a producer as well. And it was one of the first movies or it was the first movie that he 
produced as well as acted in and that be kind of kind of became one of the hallmarks of his career was kind of this totality of control and and selectiveness but um this film was the one that really cemented him as a movie star to take seriously and not just a pretty boy who likes to spend time like chasing girls and like being in the tabloids like this was the turning point of like oh warren Beatty, and then because of that and because of this movie we get him in the parallax view and we get him in shampoo and heaven can wait and reds and all these other movies but but this was like a real real crossroads moment for him so that's why it was nice. it was so crucial for for him his career and in turn like hollywood nice you're way more into old hollywood than i am which is great i love that i it's a blind it's definitely a blind spot you have true I crime think- i have you know <laughs> yeah, we all have our we're, things we're a bonnie and clyde ourselves i shall say <laughs> um Christ. other other than everything we've talked about already is there any more like context of the this movie within the big picture of this time in cinema that we need to touch on it really again is just the the historical significance and like how much this movie pushed the envelope um for its time in violence and sexuality and taking influence from those movies of uh, uh those french movies of the 60s um this pushes hollywood forward and again in 1967 like the graduate pushed mo- hollywood movies forward I guess who's coming to dinner kind of pushed hollywood forward in the heat of the night definitely pushed hollywood forward shout out to sydney portier um but Bonnie and Clyde also was such a representative movie, especially in this countercultural moment that was happening in America. Um, so it was the right movie at the right time with the right stars and the right message. And it was properly controversial. Are there any questions you have for me? Um, on a lighter moment, uh, who in your life would you most enjoy robbing banks and running from the law with? You can pick, <laughs> you know, you can pick, you know, either your just your Clyde or like you can pick your whole barrel gang. Like who's in the Liberto gang? Oh dear! Them How about to this? Be For the sake of like not implicating people, in case you do ever rob a bank, what role <laughs> would you want to play in the bank robbery? While I find myself often in positions of leadership, and I thrive in control of situations, um, I think I just have too much anxiety. I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but what I could be is assistant in charge. I could feel like I could be the Bonnie. I could be maybe, you know, the brains behind the operation and then just like see kind of like be the hot one who walks in next. Um, You know, I think that could be a fun role. Um, I could see you being the person who's like, this was not part of the plan. No. Yeah. That's how I am. Like just every day. (laughs) If the Amazon prime guy is like a day late, I'm like, this is not a part of the plan. Amanda respects a plan. And I respect that respect. I could rob banks with my sister. The Liberto sister bank robbery team would be very fun. Uh, then the last kind of comment I wanted to make, we'd be remiss to, to not mention in all this talk about Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, we have to mention that these two also gave us an iconic Oscars moment. They were the ones who read the wrong card at the Oscars for best picture and gave it to La La Land instead of Moonlight. I forgot about that. Yeah. Not that that happened. Obviously, I didn't forget that happened, but I saw it in here. Like, there's like a note that says Moonlight Oscars moment. I was like, I'm excited to find out what this means. Like, and I didn't realize it was the two of them. And specifically, it was Faye Dunaway. Not to besmirch, you know, Hollywood legends, but like, also, they fucked up. And 
it was it was that iconic duo, Bonnie and Clyde, disappointing on expectations again, um, and really clear, and really clearing the way for Jane Fonda, who was a person who was considered for Bonnie Parker, um, to nail the moment um, when she read off Parasite for Best Picture. Once again, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway giving us an iconic Hollywood moment, and you know, thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, I just have one more comment before we wrap up. Uh-huh. Um, my first cats that I had were named Bonnie and Clyde. That's adorable. They were brother and sister, uh, similar to Shirley MacLaine and Warren <laughs> Beatty, apparently. Um, uh, Bonnie was an all black cat and Clyde was black and white. And uh, they were the best cats ever. And my parents had them like at the time I was born. So I like literally, uh, there's like baby photos of me with these cats. That is beautiful. Uh, Bonnie uh, and Clyde. Beautiful. Great cats. Um, and also to the warm baby Shirley MacLaine thing. I do appreciate Hollywood siblings who like go by different last names, a la Jonah Hill and Beanie Feldstein. Um, yeah. Just kind of individualizes them a little bit. Uh, I mean, like how like Nicolas Cage is related to, uh, fuck the guy who made the Godfather. Like the, the director? The- like Francis Ford yes. Coppola? Wait, yes. What? It's his nephew. Nicolas Cage is Francis Ford Coppola's <laughs> nephew? You need to Are fact check that. Me? But I'm like 99% um, positive that that's the connection. Again, there's only seven fam. Like they're all fucking related to each other. It's Nicolas all nepotism. Nicolas Cage's name is Nicolas Coppola? Are you <laughs> yeah. kidding? What the fuck? <laughs> they're fucking, it's all one big. They're- I'm stunned. Holy shit. What is Hollywood if not nepotism? What is Hollywood if not the Coppola family persevering? <laughs> I want Coppola wine. That's all I know. Oh my, I'm stunned. Okay, we uh, we could spend like a whole other, po- that's a whole other podcast. Would you watch this movie again? Absolutely. And I wanted to bring up my cats because I will watch this movie again, probably with my mother who named my cats. Oh, that's beautiful. Love that. Well, I'm glad you watched it. I'm glad you got a little bit more um, context into that i'm glad i got more context into the coppola family um as we wrap up here uh i'm here for you zach <laughs> i just anyway good god uh let's let, we, we need to start wrapping up um i feel like we have the same answer to this what movie did we like the most out of out of the two gone girl i really liked bonnie and clyde but like i just gone girl is a fucking classic you would say it's a modern classic which i would say it's a modern classic. to our next movies amanda what are we gonna watch Modern classics. I am going to watch Moonlight, a movie I'm so ashamed to say I haven't seen yet. But now we don't have to live with that shame anymore. But this is a shame-free podcast. There's a lot of content. Absolutely. I just haven't gotten to this one. So this is my modern classic that I'm going to dive into is Moonlight. And Zach, in a very different atmosphere, what is the movie you're dealing with? Should I just do like the... No. <laughs> that movie, that scene in the theater made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna watch The Wolf of Wall Street. I'm sorry, yes! I'm sorry, Leo. I'm sorry, Matthew McConaughey. I'm sorry, Margot sorry. Robbie. Sorry, Jonah Hill. Um, yeah. Oh fuck! You should be most sorry to Jonah Hill, who is an absolute star in this movie. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about Jonah Hill's fake teeth. <laughs> We're, we're going to talk about some modern classics, modern bangers, movies that have come out since the 2010s that um, are definitely in the quote unquote canon. And we're talking about the whole movie canon. We mentioned Moonlight and the Moonlight moment before uh, when talking about 
Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. Um, can't wait to talk about that movie. Barry Jenkins is the freaking man. This movie is absolutely beautiful. And like Martin Scorsese. <laughs> the fuck? He's not yeah. related to the Coppola's, is he? Like, <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> who knows? You know, if you trace it back far enough. Um, okay, yeah. uh, real quick, Amanda, what do you know about Moonlight already? So I, I kind of don't know a whole lot. I, I do know that it's a predominantly black cast. I know that there is dealings of LGBT sexuality. Um, I know it was snuffed and then rewarded at the Oscars. Um, I do know that Mahershala Ali gives, you know, a, a, a stunning performance. Um, but that's really all I know. I'm I'm not too sure about, you know, mostly like the plot of this movie. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to finding out. And what do you know about The Wolf of Wall Street? A movie that's almost impossible to know nothing about because of the internet. Yeah, I know a ton about the movie. Like, I know it's Marty. I know it's Leo. A lot of people say it's Leo's best performance. We'll probably get into that. I know it's about Jordan Belfort. I know it's about Wall Street. I know it's about money and capitalism and the American dream. Yeah, it'll be a fun conversation. I already can't wait. Um, but, you know, along with those, what's, what else is on your watch list, friend? Um, so I'm finally getting to a couple of movies that you've seen. Um, so maybe we can talk about them. But Bergman Island is now on Hulu. So I'm going to try to check that one out. The Last Duel, which I sh- probably for spatial audio reasons should have seen in a theater. Um, I is now That's available okay. on HBO Max and I'm excited to see it. You know, Shout out we to have Ben Affleck. To- Shout out to Ben Affleck. I was going to say we have to talk about Adam Driver on this podcast. So like shout out to Adam Driver. Um, and then there's like a, I don't love TV comedies, but sometimes they're really good. And I really like Will Arnett. I am a huge fan of Arrested Development. And he has a new improv sketch comedy show coming to Netflix called Murderville, where he's the only person who knows who the killer is at the end of each episode. And he brings uh comedians on to try to solve this case but it's all improv to the comedian it seems very fun it seems very charming there's a lot of um, actors that i like that are going to be on the show so i'm gonna at least check it out hopefully it's good i mean if you're listening to this in march and it's shit i didn't watch it <laughs> Just, <you> can't. <laughs> don't hold it against me <laughs> what's on your list um so i'm gonna be finishing station 11 um obviously shout out to Mackenzie davis and also um when you're listening to this the oscars will be soon and so i'll be rounding out the 2021 slate try to watch red rocket drive my car and then along with that uh for some reason i've decided to watch ingmar bergman films i I guess for some reason like he's one of the great directors ever and so i'm finally kind of diving into all of that um what a sad man but (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's Uh, a lot of sad men we support them and their art that's true. Shout out to Adam Driver. Shout out to Adam Driver. <laughs> but yeah, so Thank definitely you guys. watch that. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can always find a new episode of Blind Spotters on the second Tuesday of the month. Um, I'm sure by now we've made it very clear on social media and maybe even an episode that we are now on more streaming platforms. We are not just exclusive to Spotify. because You can find us on Spotify still, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, if that's what your game is. Um, you know, there's a handful of other ones, and we're so excited to kind of be available to everyone. So you can find us, subscribe wherever you feel fit, um, wherever your heart's desires. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Blind Spotters Pod. Love doing a couple polls every so often, those are fun. Zach is over on Twitter at Blind Spotters. 
give us a follow. We love to talk movies with you guys. Zach, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pockleb and on Letterboxd. Um, again, I'm going to plug that Medium page where I'm ranking movies, argue with me, debate with me, but in like a pleasant way. Like, you know, just I want to have an open conversation. Tell me why you didn't love licorice pizza. Tell me why you love a Spencer. Um, I, I, I love stories. I love movies. Guys, movies are great. Um, also, leave us five-star reviews. The compliments that Amanda always asks for, leave them in the review. Like, let them be seen by everybody. Uh, she deserves that. It's her birthday. Give her a birthday shout. Again, on any day you want to. And it's Just a, it's, in general. It's a great day to celebrate Amanda Liberto every day. So do that on all days. Exactly. I concur. If you'd like to send me compliments, leave me a five-star review and also DM me on all socials at Amanda Liberto. Especially if you're a moppy-headed brunette boy. Especially. What's a girl going to do? I just want to say, if you're a cool girl, you know what cool girl does? Cool girl follows the podcast on Spotify. Cool girl leaves us a five-star review. Cool girl sends amanda compliments keep it coming uh what else we got cool girl retweets blind spotters on twitter cool girl follows blind spotters on instagram cool girl agrees with all of zach and amanda's opinions or Uh, debates kindly cool girl watches adam sandler movies and greta gerwig movies yeah uh cool girl listens to npr and supports local radio Fuck yeah, they do. Cool girls read Zach's Medium account on the reg. Cool girl supports local businesses and local artists and doesn't care about NFTs. Cool girl can't wait to watch Bergman Island and also Jackass Forever. (laughs) (laughs) The cool girls understand the Coppola family tree. (laughs) Gorgeous, gorgeous girls are cool girls. Yes, and gorgeous, gorgeous girls love the Blind Swatters podcast. Bang. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Bye. Jesus Christ. <laughs>